morning. This morning's reading from the Old Testament is from the book of Ecclesiastes, beginning with the first verse of the third chapter. You will find it on page 705 in the Pew Bibles. Before we uh, read through this, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your timing is perfect. Just as this passage says, there is a time for everything. We know that your timing may not be our timing, but your timing is perfect. Help us as we study this passage to open our hearts and minds to where we will truly understand the message you have for us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Once again, reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. I think that was I-40. I'm not sure. But. You ever feel like life is just moving too fast? I mean, there is so much to do and just not enough time to do it all in. Stan just read a moment ago from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that there's a time and a season for everything under heaven. But it just for me, it doesn't seem like the seasons are long enough. There's not enough time to do all that I need to do. I often feel overwhelmed and so busy that I'm often in a, in a really big, big hurry. Did you know that there's actually a disease called hurry sickness? It's a real thing. Cardiologist Meyer Friedman actually coined the phrase. In his study of type A personalities, Dr. Friedman came up with the term, noting that people with hurry sickness are at a greater risk for 
heart attacks. Those of us with a type A personality, I'll, I'll re- admit that, we're always on the go, always moving, trying to move from one thing to the next, trying to do and accomplish as much as possible in one day. Many of us Americans, we, we have hurry sickness. So we just want to do everything as quickly as possible. And, and the fact is that in the 21st century, technology is not helping us much. Uh, when I grew up in the 1980s, you all remember the 80s, there were only two ways that to uh, really respond to someone. You, you got a letter or maybe a phone call. Those are the two things I had to respond to. But now I've got text messages, I've got emails, I've got Facebook posts, phone calls, and maybe occasionally a letter. There's just so much that needs to be done in a given day. Hurry sickness, by definition, is a, a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. Here's some basic signs that you may have hurry sickness as you hear these. See if you identify with any of them. When you're driving your car, and you're driving your car, and you notice that Well, the lane next to you seems to be moving a little bit faster. And before you get to the stoplight, you actually count the number of cars that will be ahead of you. You notice there's going to be fewer on the right side until you just change lanes. Ever done that? Or you're in the grocery store and you've been waiting in the line and you can see there's two people in front of you. But the line right next to you only has one person. And you're pretty sure if you move over just quick enough, then you'll be able to get checked out a little bit faster. I actually did this uh, yesterday at Walmart. I, I think I saved a minute. I'm not sure. But 60 seconds were curbed. When you're on an elevator... And the door doesn't close fast enough. You go hit that door, close door button. Time and time. You don't just hit it once. You hit it multiple times. In fact, I recently learned that actually 50% of those close the door buttons are not actually attached to the door. They're just attached to a light. They light up so people will think that somehow they're helping close the door faster. And hitting it multiple times is not going to make it move any, any faster. Another sign of hurry sickness is you put something in your microwave just to heat it up and there's that little 30-second button and you hit that 30-second button and rather than just waiting the simple 30 seconds until your food is heated, you go find something else to do. Ever do that? Or maybe uh, you're just too multitasking. You're, you're on the phone, checking email and eating lunch at your desk all at the same time. Ever done that before? Anybody ever hurry sickness? Anybody? I guarantee you if I asked that question in Dallas or Houston, every hand would go up. In major metropolitan areas, that's the way we all function. Our type A American culture tells us that we're measured by what we do. And so we want to do as much as possible in a given day. But the Bible tells us that ultimately we're measured by what Jesus has done for us. That our identity is not found in what we do, but rather what he has done. And we simply respond to his grace through faith. We all know that, and yet because of the culture and the times we live in, we can in a hurry, in a real hurry. John Ortberg says this about hurry sickness. The most serious sign of hurry sickness is a diminished capacity to love. Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time, and time is one thing hurried people don't have. Hurry sickness ultimately damages our relationships with others. So how can we battle the temptation or the disease of hurry sickness? I mean, life is going to be busy. There's going to be a lot of demands on our lives. But is it possible to be busy and yet not in a hurry? Well, as you read the gospel, specifically the gospel of Luke, we can see that Jesus had a lot of demands on his time. He was a busy man, and yet he was never in a hurry. What's the key to making sure we're not in a hurry, even though we may be busy? 
To find out, I would encourage you to open your pew Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. Luke, chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. may be found on page 1101 of your pew Bible. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you so much that you inspired Luke, the physician, to put pen to paper so that we might have an orderly account of the, of the life and the times and the G- teachings of Jesus. God, I pray that as we read your word that you might open our eyes, open our hearts, and open our ears, that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a a discharge of blood for 12 years, and and though she'd spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. You know, when our children are sick, we'll do anything to help make them well. We'll travel miles to Dallas or to Houston. I I know a family in Dallas 
who flew regularly to, to Minnesota to go to the Mayo Clinic to help find a cure for their daughter's obscure disease. We will go any amount of distance and spend any amount of money that we possibly can to help our children when they're sick because we love them so much. Jairus is no different. He's the ruler of the local synagogue. He's a Jewish leader, and yet he is desperate, desperate to see someone heal his daughter. She is dying. She's just 12 years old. And 12 is a significant number in the Bible, for there were 12 tribes of Israel. And in the first century, 12 is about the age when a a young girl would begin to go through puberty. And so often a, a woman would be betrothed at the age of 12. She's at the age when she should be finding a husband or being betrothed to a, to a husband. But instead of beginning a new life as a married woman, she's dying. Jairus, the leader of the local synagogue, is desperate. Jairus, who's responsible for worship in that local synagogue, comes to Jesus, the carpenter's son, now turned itinerant preacher, and falls at Jesus' feet and implores him to come to his house to heal his daughter. He doesn't care how shameful or embarrassing it may look. He just wants someone, anyone, to heal his daughter. And he believes that Jesus, he's heard, well, that Jesus can cast out any demon and heal any disease. We've seen that as we've journeyed through Luke. Jesus began by, you'll remember, healing Peter's mother-in-law. And he rebuked every disease or or demon that came to him. He does some amazing miracles. He he was able to heal a leper with just the touch and the words of his mouth. As Will pointed out a few weeks ago, he was able to, to, to allow a lame man to walk simply by saying to him, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus has become famous as the the great healer. He's able to, to heal every disease. And he honors Jairus' humble request. And heads towards Jairus' home. Jesus is looking for those who have a humble faith. For Jesus says in the very first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we hope to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we have to have a, a humble heart. We have to be poor in spirit. We have to recognize our desperate need for God's help, God's grace, God's forgiveness. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us in his epistle, James chapter 4, verse 6, he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do we humbly recognize our need for Jesus each and every day? Or do we tend to live our lives and only call upon Jesus when we need him? We can see in our text that Jesus honors those who come to him with a a humble faith. Jairus needs Jesus' help. He is humble, and so he he comes to Jesus on his knees, and he implores him, begs him to come to his house, and and Jesus gets up, and he realizes that Jairus is, well, he's anxious. His daughter is dying, so he gets up, and he immediately begins to go towards his home, but the crowd is pressing on Jesus. Everybody wants to get a a part of Jesus. That It's so thick, they've been waiting to see him for so long that he's not able to move very quickly. In fact, the Greek word for pressing here can also be translated as choke. And and Luke had used this word, this Greek word about pressing and choking earlier when Jesus had told the parable of the sower and the seeds and how some seed grows up among thorns and the thorns choke out the the plant. And how this is illustrating the fact that the word of faith will will plant in some people's hearts, but the care and the concerns and the worries of this world will, will choke out the word of God so it doesn't ultimately flourish like it's supposed to. The people, the crowds, are preventing Jesus, the word made flesh, to to bring God's healing word to Jairus' daughter. I imagine this is frustrating Jairus. 
He can't control the crowd. He's probably very upset. He wants to keep Jesus moving as quickly as possible to his home so he might save his daughter. And then, boom, it happens. A woman with a hemorrhage touches Jesus' garment, and Jesus stops walking. He stops moving. And he asks, who touched me? Jesus doesn't seem to be as worried as Jairus is. He he senses that power has left him, and he asks, who was it that touched me? For this woman with a very humble and persistent faith comes to Jesus and and touches the garment. She's had a hemorrhage, we we hear, for for 12 years. Most likely this this bleeding is is some kind of menstrual bleeding that she's had for 12 years, and, and she spent all the money she could on physicians. Just imagine how hard it was for Luke the doctor, to write this phrase. She had spent all her living on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. Luke didn't want to write that. That's not good for doctors, right? But that's what had happened. No physician, no doctor was able to heal her. She was now poor because she'd spent all her money on physicians, and yet to no avail, she was still bleeding, an uncontrollable bleeding. In fact, we read in the Mosaic Law, in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 19, that when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. This woman is viewed as unclean because she's in her menstrual bleeding period right now and it's been going on for 12 years, the the same amount of time that Jairus' daughter has been alive, the entire time span that his daughter has been alive. This woman has been bleeding and she's been unclean for a very long time. She should not even have been near the crowd much less touch Jesus. But she doesn't care. She's desperate to be healed. And so with a humble, persistent faith, she touches the garment of Jesus' robe. You know, Jesus honors those who come to him with a humble and persistent faith. If we keep reading the Gospel of Luke, we'll see that in the Gospel of Luke, specifically chapter 18, Jesus tells this wonderful story about the persistent widow who persistently comes to the unjust judge and makes her claim and her call and her cry for justice. And we read that even though this unjust judge does not fear God or cares what man thinks, because the woman is so persistent, ultimately he gives her what she pleads for. And then Jesus says these words in Luke chapter 18, verse 7 to 8, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus helps us see that if an unjust judge is willing to give justice to a persistent widow because she is persistent, how much will our just God, our loving God, give us justice if we will come to him with humility and persistence? Yes, God honors a faith that is humble and persistent. Are we humble and persistent in our faith today? Do we often pray once and then we give up if we don't get what we hope for? Or do we continue to pray and continue to cry out to God? As the Apostle Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, he tells us, pray without ceasing. We should have a running conversation with God, recognizing our need for God's help. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, we read in John chapter 15. We should have a a running conversation with with God as we call out to him, give our casts, our concerns to him. And as we can see from the woman with with the hemorrhage, as we humbly and persistently come to Jesus, we'll find healing. Once the woman is healed, 
She tries to go away to escape. She doesn't want to bring attention to herself. But Jesus won't let him. He stops. He stops everything. He says, who was it that touched me? And Peter thinks this is kind of a weird question. He's like, Jesus, everybody's touching you. Can't you tell we're pressing in on you? They're almost choking you. It's, It's so crowded right now. Everybody wants a part of you. Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? And Jesus continues, no, I felt power leave me. Who touched me? And Jesus isn't moving another step until someone confesses. So with trembling and great humility, this widow, this woman who's just been healed falls down at Jesus' feet and declares in the presence of all the people who are there that, that why she touched Jesus and, and how immediately the moment she touched Jesus' robe, she was healed. And then Jesus honors this humble, persistent woman's faith that is now public and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus honors faith that is humble, persistent, and public. In Luke 12, Jesus tells us, we find in Luke 12, verses 8 to 9, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Do we acknowledge Jesus before men? Do people know that we're followers of Christ based on the things that we say and the things that we do? Do we have a a faith that is evident and and public to others? Because we can find from our story this morning that this woman who was healed by Jesus had a faith that was humble, persistent, and ultimately public. Does that describe our faith today? Do we humbly recognize our need for Jesus each and every day? Do we persistently talk to him throughout the day so that we might be encouraged and know his presence is with us? And are we willing to tell others the difference that Jesus has made in our lives so that our faith isn't private, but rather public? Several months ago, I was uh, going with uh, uh, Kim Talley and an elder uh, to a presbytery meeting in Dallas, and we decided to stop for uh, dinner in Wichita Falls at McAllister's there, and as the uh, waiter came to bring our food, to deliver our food, this elder said, we're about to say a blessing. How might we pray for you? Would you like for us to pray for you? Well, the waiter was so blessed by the question that he began to tell us all the things we could pray for. What a great question. We often pray in restaurants, but have we ever asked the waiter, the waitress, how we might pray for them? Well, he told us what he needed. He needed prayers for school. And so we said a a prayer for the food and a prayer for his school. And and he was so grateful for that. Just last Thursday, I was uh, at Cheddar's on I-40 with several elders. And we had a waitress come up to us, Savannah. And she, uh, you know, asked us a a little bit about what we were doing. And and I explained, you know, I was a pastor at First Pres. And and we all go to First Pres. And I asked her, do you have a church home? And she said no. And I said, well, we'd love to have you come to our church. And she kind of told us a little bit about her story and why she doesn't go to church. Because, you know, she works at the lunch hour on Sundays. I said, well, we've got 830, you know. She didn't come. But anyway, I did tell her about it. And then, and then just remembering that question that Elder had asked, I said, in a moment, when you bring our food, you know, we're going to have a prayer. Is there anything we could be praying for you about, Savannah? And she said, well, could you pray with me? That'd be great. We'll pray with you. And so we prayed a prayer, all holding hands, praying for the food and praying for Savannah. You know, Amarillo, most people have heard of Jesus. What people want to know is, does Jesus really make a difference Do we have a faith that shows that Jesus makes a difference? Are we the kind of people who who humbly and persistently come to Jesus in prayer and we're willing to share that faith with others? 
demonstrating the love of Jesus by offering to pray for others or offering encouraging words or simply willing to listen to what another person has to say to hear their story so that we might love them through it. Yes, even though Jesus was rushed by Jairus to get to his home to heal his daughter, Jesus would not allow himself to be in a hurry. John Ortberg uh, explains it this way. Jesus often had much to do, but he never did it in a way that severed the life-giving connection between him and his father. He never did it in a way that interfered with his ability to give love when love was called for. He observed a regular practice of withdrawing from activity for the sake of solitude and prayer. Jesus was often busy, but never hurried. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. To say it another way, because Jesus regularly spent time alone with his heavenly father, he had an ordered heart. He lived on kairos time, not just chronos time. You see, in the Bible, there are two words for time. There's chronos time. We get the English word chronological from chronos time. Most of us operate on chronos time. I can look at my schedule and see that on Wednesday from 8 to 11, I needed to work on my, my sermon. Then from 11 to noon, I needed to meet with a new elder. Then from 12 to 1, I needed to meet with the strategic facilities task group. Then from 1 to 2, I needed to meet with Charlotte to plan the session meeting. Then from 2 to 3, I needed to meet with Kara. I had a lot going on Wednesday in my chronological order of my day. But kairos time, kairos time on the other word, on the other other hand, is the word that refers to the right season, the right moment, the right occasion. Kairos time is, is God's time. Jesus operated on kairos time. In our story this morning, we're very clear that that many had demands on Jesus. There was a girl who was dying. He needed to get there to help her. But but then someone touched his robe, and, and time stopped, and in that kairos moment, He ministered to the woman who had had the faith to touch his robe. He honored her faith. He cared for her. God gives each one of us divine appointments, kairos moments each and every day. Are we willing to to recognize them? Are we willing to walk according to God's way so that we might see and catch those moments? So that God might use us to be a, a blessing to others? When I was a missions pastor at Highland Park Presbyterian Church, we would have moment for missions like you're going to have here in a moment with, with Murray in just a few moments. And when we would have those moment for missions, we'd have these missionaries and people from all over the world come. And, and we had a pastor from Southeast Asia come. And, and he was a really great guy. And in his broken English, I explained to him many times, you've got three minutes, not four, three minutes. The, hour, the service has to end in an hour. Presbyterians, that's all we do, you know. We got up on the microphone and he began to share this three minute moment for mission. And in his broken English, he said, I've been told I have three minutes. In the United States, everyone has watch, but no one has time. In my country, no one has watch, but everyone has time. And as I'm thinking that, as the pastor in Dallas, I'm going, That's great, but you've just used your three minutes. Are we willing to slow down so that we might walk according to God's timing? Kairos time is that brief moment when the elder asks the waitress, the waiter, how might we pray for him in Wichita Falls? Kairos time is the moment at uh, that table in Cheddar's with several church leaders and we were talking to this woman named Savannah and said, how can we be, Sahara, how can we be praying for you? Kairos time is taking your kids to ice cream after you've learned they've had a bad day. 
Kairos time is, is making an opportunity to grab lunch with your spouse or, or with a friend when you have an opening in your schedule. It's taking time to be with others. Jesus was busy, but he was never in a hurry. He had time for anyone who would come to him. Jesus operated on Kairos time, always ready for that holy interruption when he might bless another person. John Ortberg explains it this way. Hurry prevents us from receiving love from the Father or giving it to his children. That's why Jesus never hurried. If we were to follow Jesus, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives because by definition, we can't move faster than the one we are following. If we're all following Jesus, then we need to walk at his pace and according to his time. If we will, like Jesus, take the time we need to be alone with our Heavenly Father in prayer and solitude, if we will come to God with a humble, persistent, and public faith, then God will show us those Kairos moments when God might use us to bless others. Then we might be busy, but we won't be in a hurry. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you that you are the God who takes time for everyone. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would continue to guide us as we seek to walk in your steps, to walk according to your ways, to do your will here on earth as it is in heaven. May we, like the woman with the hemorrhage, come to you with a humble, persistent, and public faith so that you might show us how we might better walk according to your ways, so that you might show us those kairos moments when we might be a blessing to others. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.